a Podcast One production. performer is a weird life sometimes. Occasionally you will get ideas that you simply must make happen, regardless of the difficulty or weirdness of the idea. While at a party, a friend's husband told a story about how he used to work at a popular chicken restaurant chain, which I won't mention the name of here. And a thing they used to do when the trucks full of raw chickens would arrive is something called chicken boxing. No, it's not carefully removing the chickens from boxes and storing them in the kitchen. It's ramming your fist up the backside of a raw chicken carcass and using it as a boxing glove. Twice, because you've got two hands, obviously. And then having a boxing match with your mate who's also wearing a pair of chicken gloves. I thought this sounded so funny. Two young, dumb guys bashing each other with raw chickens on their hands. Maybe I'm a weirdo. (laughs) Actually, yes, of course I am. I already said I'm a performer. Anyway, I decided that chicken boxing was absolutely something I should do on stage. So one day, I bought four raw chickens and stored them in the fridge of a guy I was dating at the time, ready to use as boxing gloves with a friend at a comedy night in a few days' time. This guy and I were regulars at these comedy nights. Although, when they would finish... He would make me wait in the car while he said goodbye to everyone because he didn't want anyone to know we were together. I can't imagine why. I only wanted to fist dead chickens for attention. What's the big deal? So we drove to the comedy night together with my four chickens in a bag. Of course, I had to wait to walk in. Can't walk in together. Now, the performance itself was fine. It was mildly amusing. The chicken gloves worked. And my friend and I beat each other up without sustaining any injuries. We were like 1970s cops with a baton and a phone book. I felt bad about wasting the chickens, though, so I put them in a bag to take home and went and waited in the car for 20 minutes while the guy I was dating said his goodbyes and then put them in the fridge when we got to his place. Then, the next evening, would you believe it? The guy who didn't want anyone to know we were dating dumped me. I know. I was as shocked as you are. I vaguely remember running out of the house at midnight into the rain and crying, and I didn't hear from him for days. When I finally did get a call from him, I had that glimmer of hope. You know the one. Oh, maybe he's realised he's made a huge mistake and is calling to apologise. Nah. Instead it was, Those chickens stink. Please come and get rid of them. You'll be pleased to know I didn't get rid of them for him. After that phone call, I decided to very much make that his problem. I guess that's a little win amidst the fail. Make me wait in a car, will ya? I'll make rotten chicken boxing gloves wait in your fridge, mate. In this episode, I talk to Ben Law about nudity, News Corp and knowing your worth. Do you have any funny anecdotes of something shameful that's happened? Like Like a fail that's not really like a... I was writing uh, feature articles for a really long time and I hope to later on as well. It's kind of my first passion. But I actually used to write for News Corp quite a bit. 
um, when I was living in Queensland uh, for a magazine called Q Weekend because, you know, it's kind of a one-paper <laughs> city, Brisbane. I had a great editor and I pitched a story about the fact that Queensland has no legal nude beaches. It's like this weird overhang from the Bjorka Peterson era. And uh, I had to go to the nude Olympics on the Sunshine Coast, uh, which were technically illegal because you're not supposed to be naked on any beach, but they still need surf lifesavers. And I was going to use that as my whole hook. I had a really funny entry point where I'm like, it's hard to take notes when you don't have pockets, you know, like (laughs) (laughs) all that sort of stuff. The nudist community said, we'll feel way more comfortable if um, if you're naked as well because, like, to have a journalist there around a whole bunch of naked people, we're going to feel awkward and you will probably feel awkward too. And I'm like, okay, I haven't really done much public nudity, but okay, fine. And after a while, you know, for any of us who've been naked around friends or whatever, it, it kind of feels okay after a while. Feels, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have no, you done a lot of public... Oh, my, we're going to go to Japan together. Okay. I mean, I've, we'll be segregated. You'll be on the women's onsen and the dudes will be on the dudes onsen. But I've but, got tattoos. Oh, okay. Well, then we'll go to Germany. Okay. Okay, okay so we'll, we'll t- go to Germany. And Germany's different because it's co-ed. Women yeah. and men and everyone in between are naked all together. Yeah, they and, think we're weird. The Westerners are weird for, like, being so thingy about sex. We've got this whole kind of British hang over. Whereas when you think about it, I think most cultures have some sort of socially sanctioned space for uh, communal nudity. Australia mm. really doesn't. And no, I no. certainly did not have a reference point when I went to this naked beach. Anyway, to answer your question, like a mistake that was funny, I was naked taking notes, interviewing people. I came second in the best bums competition that day. Uh, I think it was rigged. I should have come first. Um <laughs> And then the the head of the nudist colony or whatever was like, Ben, 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 um, the ABC is here. So you might know this colleague, you know, she's right, she's doing a story for radio, you're doing a story for print, you should meet each other. I'm like, okay, okay. And then I go over and she is fully clothed and I've just got my schlong out. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, how long have you been working for the ABC? Yeah, cool. Oh, my God. Like you just think. <laughs> Shoot me now because there's something weird about a professional interaction where one of you is naked and the other one is clothed. A very specific power dynamic that I do not want to repeat again. That's wild. Yeah. What would she say? Uh, she was very good at maintaining eye contact, I have to say. I don't remember a thing she said because the monologue in my head was just kill me now. Fail! Would you be able to describe for me uh, what you do? It's a question I often ask myself, really, an existential question. Because, because I, I guess, like maybe a blunt way of putting it is, I'm a bit, um, I'm a bit slutty when it comes to my work. Professionally promiscuous is a diplomatic way of putting it. I write, I write a lot. That's how I started off. I started off writing for magazines and newspapers. Then I got into academia, and then I got into writing a book that became a TV show. So then I became a screenwriter, and now I guess I present radio and some television as well. So I'm kind of all over the shop, jack of all trades. And how did you get your start? I got my start by being born into a family that wasn't poor. And I know that sounds like such a grim thing to say, but when you look back on it, everyone's just like, I got my start because I applied myself at blah, 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 blah. But really, the more you kind of live life and the more you meet people, the more you realise like you get your start by being born into a position of privilege usually because if you're born into poverty, it's really hard to get get out of it. So I was born in like middle-class suburbia, 
But then in terms of career stuff, um, I studied creative writing, which is a degree that no one should do. It doesn't get you any qualifications. And I was just um, a little bit crazy because I was very, very cognizant of the fact that a degree like that didn't afford you it didn't guarantee you any jobs. You know, a dentistry degree leads to dentistry. Creative writing degree, does that mean you're going to be a novelist? Probably not. Were so you I just, cognizant all the way through? Yeah, I think so. I think I also was – there was that cognizance of it's not going to necessarily lead to a job combined with or amplified by this kind of son of migrant shame that my parents had done so much coming to this country because my parents are Chinese-Australian um, – and I'd worked so hard to put me through school and now I was doing an arts degree. So that lit a fire under my ass. I basically did a lot of work experience for magazines. Frankie magazine was a big break. Getting my first book published was a big break. First TV show was a big break. But those breaks come from other people looking out for you. Oh, okay. Mm. That's, it's, it's, I haven't really heard both of those <laughs> sentiments on this podcast before. The fact that if you have an advantage starting off you know, you do well. Yeah. And the other one is, yeah, other people looking out for you. Other people look out for you. Look, I, I think hard work, that is obviously a fundamental, like a, a prerequisite of success. Like you can't do work unless you work hard, right? But it's not a guarantee. Like I know so many people who work hard and they're not successful. I know, especially in the arts and in the media, you know, they work their asses off but unless you're in the right place at the right time it's not going to happen so I've seen you know friends and colleagues go through that path I've also seen I mean I was on a show called Filthy Rich and Homeless the other year so that made me really aware that if you're born into poverty really hard to get yourself out of it and so I guess those things combined have made me realize actually as much as I'm a product of working hard and I do a lot of it's like weird luck and people having, you know, having a better idea of what your career should be beyond yourself. Amazing. Yeah, I haven't thought about it that way. But obviously we're talking about all your successes oh, thank and, you. and yes. your profile Tell and everything. More. But I have to sort of change gears and ask you what yeah. failure means to you. Failure, I think, if you work in the arts and in the media as, as we do, is probably something we all experience every day. Because with writing especially, like every sentence is failure. Like it, uh, writing is kind of excruciating because every sentence is failure until you get the right one. And it's kind of like bricklaying, but the mortar's kind of going everywhere. You're making a mess as you go along. Every time you write something new, you are writing something for the first time. It's not like a routine. As much as you can impose on it a sense of routine, you're producing something new every time. So I feel like kind of comfortable with failure in a way and I feel you know there's that whole phrase uh fail again fail better and I only think you're supposed to learn and get a sense of getting better through failure so it's really uncomfortable it's really excruciating we're defensive against failure but it's one of the healthiest things and necessary things in order to grow that feeling of writing a sentence over and over again and just going I can't do this yeah yeah, I, I think people who um, talk about writing and romanticise it, I'm, I'm really suspicious of them. Or, or and, and when I say writing, I'm talking about like whether it's writing um, prose, writing a script, writing a writing a, a, a song, whatever. Um, that stuff can be really, really hard. I mean, there's a beautiful kind of sensation when it all feels like it's coming together effortlessly, but that's usually the exception to the rule I find. Mm. 
Yeah, just being in that moment, you just triggered me. <laughs> We're yeah. going to have to take a break now. <laughs> when you rewrite something 50 times, yeah. Yeah, yeah been there. And uh, what would you say has been your biggest professional achievement? I would have to say maybe something that I wrote in 2017. It was part of the series Quarterly Essay. So um, it's quite serious, sometimes academic, a little bit stuffy sometimes, but it's it's all about, you know, it's about, about a 20,000 word essay, often investigative journalism, sometimes analysis, uh, looking at world affairs. And it's something that I grew up really admiring and being intimidated by. And I had the opportunity to write one about the safe school scandal. It was called Moral Panic 101. And I have never worked so hard in my life because stupidly, I took up the contract to write Moral Panic 101 in the same period that I was writing the third season of my TV show, The Family Law. And as much as I think that that's kind of foolish in retrospect, I also understand and understood at the time that I didn't really have a choice because there's only one opportunity to write a final season of a TV show. There's only one opportunity to have written that quarterly essay. It had to be then and now. And I just didn't sleep for about nine months properly. You know, my skin went to shit. I was just bags under my eyes. And I flew all around the country just doing these wild interviews. I remembered like Penny Wong, for instance. She does not grant interviews very easily. She is a busy woman. She is like the head of the Senate of the Labor Party. And uh, she only likes doing interviews in person. So I just remembered, okay, she said yes to this very tight window, clear all my schedule. I am about to fly to Adelaide for a 30-minute interview. Oh, she's running late. Oh, she's only got 15 minutes. Okay, Penny, we're going to be fast. Okay, we're done. Thank you. I have gotten everything. I'm going back home now. It was really, really hilarious. And also I was writing about, you know, one of the biggest, most powerful media organisations, which was News Corp, and how I saw they'd messed up and uh, I knew they'd go after me after I wrote it. So it was it was tough, but I'm really proud of it yeah. because it holds up. Yeah. Oh, that's double whammy. TV yeah. show and an investigative essay at yeah, the same it's time. Yeah, double penetration, Greta, <laughs> and not in a good way. <laughs> you know, you know it's basically all orifices plus hands, <laughs> all on deck. We've all been there. It can it can be pleasurable after a while. Yeah, yeah, but at the time, uh, you're wondering, mm, what am I doing? Rough. <laughs> <laughs> so you signed a contract to write this essay, but yeah. what drove you to to write it, basically? That's a really good question because I don't think I knew the answer to that question until I was way beyond the other side. The essay had come out. Um, I'd done a whole blitz of publicity at the same time that News Corp was starting a campaign uh, against me personally, which was quite amusing. Against you personally? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, They were quite strategic in starting a campaign, coincidentally, on the same day that the quarterly essay came out because it was during the whole same-sex marriage postal survey and a lot of senators and politicians were saying reprehensible things about about same-sex attracted people. And I wrote a tweet saying, oh, my God, sometimes I wonder how many homophobic MPs I'd hate fuck if it meant that it got the homophobia out of them out of their system. So I wrote that tweet because it was in response to some vile stuff that was being said. And that tweet got a lot of traction, a lot of likes, a lot of retweets. Then on the day my quarterly essay came out, News Corp uh, through the Australian came out against me saying, this tweet, hate fucking Benjamin Law, rape advocate Benjamin Law. And I'm like, oh, I see what's happening. But it meant that a lot of people read the quarterly essay who would have otherwise missed it because of the publicity. Free publicity, you know, got to get it where it is. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. 
I realize now it was anger, like red hot anger, because when you look at the coverage of safe schools during that time, both people for and against or people who thought they were for or against safe schools thought they were defending or attacking something that actually didn't exist. They, people were talking about some sort of initiative or program where people like gay activists came into schools and taught kids and teenagers about being trans or being gay and all that sort of stuff. That is not what Safe Schools is at all. And the story had got so twisted that people were in support and attacking a program that didn't actually exist. It was something that was designed to support uh, teachers and principals support the, the student. So if, if there was homophobic bullying in class, teachers would then feel equipped to know how to handle that situation, for instance. And so I, I was really, really angry because it, I thought what News Corp did about safe schools and against safe schools was quite homophobic, but also showed like a real low point for Australian media and its integrity. You know, like the media journalists are often one of the least trusted kind of realms of Australian political discourse. And I, I think there's a reason. Yeah, yeah. So you just had to have your say. Well, yeah. I mean, if a powerful media organisation is going to throw vulnerable children under the bus in order to extend some sort of culture war against the queer community, yeah, I'm going to be angry. And I think anger is such a complicated emotion that sometimes the only way to use it is to work. Yeah, amazing. Can you describe a time in your life when you felt the most happiest and fulfilled? You know what? I, I, I've been thinking about this lately and I actually feel like it was the other week because, I mean, it's easy to identify the points in our life or our working life that are pretty miserable. Like misery tends to etch itself in our bodies and in us. You know, like when you were triggered before, oh, you're yeah, like, yeah. I know what that feels like. <laughs> Happiness is harder to identify, right? It's kind of ephemeral um, and we love that feeling, but it's not scarred on our body. But the other week I was in a writer's room for a TV show that we're developing, may or may not happen. But when we were pitching ideas to each other, and you've probably had this as well, Greta, because when you're writing comedy especially where you're actually bent over laughing at how funny your friend or even, you know, ashamedly you you are in that moment. (laughs) And the other day I was in a writer's room with my friend Bridget and we're developing a show together and we were laughing so hard that I thought I needed medical attention because (laughs) we were just in tears. We couldn't breathe properly. And I just thought, this is work. I can't believe that this moment in this room, in this building is work. And that was joyous. And I just thought, you know, for all of the the hardship that's involved in this industry and when things don't get off the ground, this is fun. This is fun. So it's just a moment. The TV show might not even be made, but it doesn't matter because we had that moment. It's the process that's important and the fact that you guys can do that, you know. Totally, totally. And we had that moment, we're proud of it. Who knows what will happen next, but we created just in that moment something really cool. That's amazing. Speaking of hardships. Yes. Can you tell me about a low point? Yes, well, my life story is basically Angela's ashes but gay and Asian. Um, (laughs) Look, a low point... It was probably something I came back to before when the when the Australian went after me on the day that my quarterly essay came out and they started a campaign and I knew they would, I just didn't know what they would use. But then the tweet came out, I'm like, oh, that. Well, that's easy to deflect 
because I don't think anyone will care. But that morning I went on ABC News Breakfast to talk about my essay and the whole interview was basically about the tweet that The Australian had published earlier that day. And because I hadn't really, because I thought no one was taking it seriously or no one would, I really was ill-prepared and and stupidly ill-prepared because I should have thought, oh, well, they're not going to give it up. Um, They're going to really, really ram this hard. And so in that moment where I felt like I botched an interview and I couldn't talk about my work properly and then I realised, oh, you should have seen that coming, I really did think to myself, oh, you have basically scuttled all the hard work that you've put into your essay. No one's going to take it seriously. Your reputation is is ruined, even if you want to repair it somehow. I've seen what's happened to other people, you know, like media careers can be over pretty quickly if other people decide it should be. Um, people can get cancelled yes. very, very fast. Um, and I just thought it's, it's a, you know, I've seen it happen to people like Yasmin Abdel-Majid. I've seen it happen to Osman Farouki. And for people of colour, you know, especially for them being brown from Muslim background, there's almost like a hierarchy of people that you can go after and who it'll affect more. I just thought, oh, geez, I really screwed that up. But all you need in those moments, I find, is an hour to kind of just take stock and figure out where you are, have a shower and have a moan as the water hits you and just like recalibrate because, you know, in that moment, I guess they were kind of declaring war and I'm like, okay, well, are you up for it or not? And in a way you kind of don't have a choice. So I used a low point and I think tried my best to turn it into a high point. And I think we did because it's one of the most read quarterly essays in that series yet. Fantastic. What's that like, that chat with yourself, that recalibration? Well, it's funny because like my my boyfriend who I refer to as White Oprah, uh, <laughs> sometimes like he's he's really good in a crisis. Um, he's a boss as well, so he he really helps other people through their crises. And all of my friends, all my family knows that if you're going through a rough patch, you go to my boyfriend because he's really really good. So even if he's not around, I kind of have his voice in my head, a very calming TEDx kind of voice, um, saying, "Okay, so what's gone wrong?" Is it, has it really gone that wrong? What needs to be done? There's kind of like a process that you need to go through. Um, all that stuff, like if you've ever done therapy and I've done a bit in my time, it's kind of like after a while, you kind of need to be your own therapist. And if your friend was going through a similar situation, what would you tell them? Usually that's what you need to hear. What you would tell a friend is what you need to tell yourself. The biggest challenge is whether you believe it or not. So a big pep talk of just going through, you know what, that's happened. You can't take that back. What can you do now? And then then it's work again, you know. Like if, you, if you're used to like making a plan and sticking to an agenda, that, that stuff kind of feels familiar. Mm. So you don't catastrophize. You don't go, oh, it's all over because I have a tendency to do that. I don't know. I... I I feel like um, so much of my, uh, this sounds really, really grim and I promise it's not, but I feel like so much of my childhood and teen years was such a catastrophe that I'm like, okay, you know what catastrophe is, so maybe get a little bit of perspective, you know, like your brain's not falling apart from mental illness at the moment, which you've experienced before. The very foundations on which your family's <laughs> family and household have been built are not shattered to the core. That's not happening all the other fundamentals are okay. Is there a threat that you might not be able to work? Well, you've gone through that before. What did you do last time? You know what I mean? So it really is about those pep talks. I think I've, I don't think I've perfected it, but I think I've gotten better. And plus, I don't know, I mean, I'm closer to 40 than I am 30 nowadays. You're kidding. So I feel like I've just kind of like mellowed out 
and, you know, have fewer fucks to give. <laughs> it does happen. Well, I think by that stage you've kind of like experienced a few proper disasters and you're like, is it as bad as that? Is it as bad as that? What did you do last time? Or maybe it is as bad as that, but we've, done, we've gone through something similar. Let's step through again. Do you feel comfortable, and it's fine if you don't, discussing any of those experiences that did form that perspective of when there was catastrophe? Yeah, I mean, I'm comfortable discussing them because a lot of them were, or a version of them were represented in the TV show that we did, The Family Law, which is semi-autobiographical. So, you know, that's a comedy. The first two seasons are a comedy about divorce, the funniest thing ever. And my, my parents went through a cataclysmic divorce incredibly toxic marriage both great people but very different people who should not have gotten married and those were years that were just really tough and suffocating but now you know I'm kind of an adult with my own agency and free will and I you know as much as I'm invested in my family at least I come back to a space that's safe um and what else you know like also coming out as gay which I did when I was 17 but that was like a good decade's worth of keeping feelings inside and feeling like life was going to unravel at any moment, which is which really takes a toll on mental health. And I also feel like now that I've experienced mental ill health, I'm like, well, these things, these feelings are bad that you're feeling as a as a 37 year old, but your brain's not unraveling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, in a way, it's sort of it's not. Re- because you were saying before about privilege and advantage yeah, and all this yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. I don't know. I reckon it was might have been a pretty hard go and that's what's made you... Oh, yeah. I mean, like, you know, we, we all recognise... We all well, should recognise, I think, our, our privileges right, and right. also the stuff we've been through. Like, yeah. both things can be true simultaneously, right. right? Like, yeah. it can be true that teen years were really tough for me but it's also true that I still went to a private school that my you know that my dad and mum scrapped their savings to put us through a school where you know five Asian kids wouldn't be beaten up (laughs) (laughs) far out yeah some of the schools were rough where we grew up but but the school we went to was fine and I like how that tweet story is not a mistake it's no. a, it's a, you can stand by it. Well, I feel like what are mistakes with perspective? They're like the they're episodes where you learn things, right? And this is one of the things that I'm always interested in in the work that I do. I think anyone who's like read my stuff probably notices that I'm really fascinated by shame and embarrassment because shame and embarrassment are huge kind of turning points. Like when we write it for the screen, for instance, if a character is experiencing shame, they will not be that person afterwards because you kind of refuse to be. Like shame and embarrassment are so stressful and torturous. Your body, your brain is going to do anything it can to avoid that situation again, to take stock and say, okay, how do, where did we go wrong and how do we avoid it again? So uh, those low points, those mistakes... I think are actually quite useful and practical. Mm, mm. Look, the next time a challenge comes round, yes. are you prepared for it? And you know, what's your coping strategy, and and how are you gonna how are you gonna move forward? Oh, I love a challenge. If if the producers of Survivor are listening to this, first of all, you need more diversity, and second of all, I can provide that. For instance, when filthy, I Rich think and you're Home- overestimating the <laughs> listenership of this. <laughs> if if. If a challenge always comes up and maybe it's my instinct as a writer because everything becomes material, right? I'm all the question for me is not why, it's always why not. 
Yeah. And maybe I'm a little bit too laissez-faire and naive when it comes to challenges, but I tend to dive in if I'm if I'm interested, if it's challenging, if it will make money. Yeah. <laughs> and if it fulfills most of those criteria or all of them ideally, I'm definitely going to say yes. And then I tend to think about the consequences later on. But yeah, any sort of challenge, I'm keen to see if it is surmountable. And if it's not, hopefully there's a good story there nonetheless. So you'd do it regardless. Yeah, because I feel like what's there to lose? Time, maybe, money, maybe, dignity, sure, but I don't have any any anyway. <laughs> so why not? And if it doesn't work out, well, I know what that feels like and it's not the end of the world. Amazing. That's great. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Jenna. <laughs> Thanks for listening. To share your fails with me, you can contact me on my Facebook or Twitter at Greta Lee Jackson. Fail with Greta Lee Jackson is presented by me and recorded at the studios of Podcast One Australia. For more episodes of Fail with Greta Lee Jackson, head to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app or look me up on Apple Podcasts. 